no, nobody's all good or all bad. All of these characters have great qualities, great traits, great characteristics that anybody, any sensible, mature person ought to respect. But at the same time, they all got dirt on them. They all break rules. They all cut corners. They're all very, very flawed. Good guy, bad guy. That's every single character on the show. Hey, everyone. My name's Kobe. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to The Wire Stripped. We're the podcast that goes through The Wire episode by episode. And today we're going to be watching season two, episode five. It's called Undertow. And if you want to get in contact with us at any point, guys, we are on social media at The Wire Stripped on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. All right, on with the show. Here's me and Kobe talking about Undertow on the streets of London. He got the fire and the fury at his command. Well, you don't have to worry when you hold on to Jesus' hand. We'll all be safe from Satan when the thunder rolls. Okay, guys, um, we are still, we're look, we are overlooking the River Thames. Uh, the sun's coming down. It's a glorious day here in London, stroke what we want to be Baltimore. The docks, this is the docks of, it's the of docks. London. Overlook, it? it is. Do both, wait, London probably has actual docks. There are docks. <laughs> we uh, just didn't do any research. <laughs> and this is convenient. And there's, uh, some, there's, some container, there's some container vessels so we can think, that's close enough, I think. Yeah, they're just sitting there. Probably filled with all sorts of drugs and chemicals and <laughs> cameras and CD players. <laughs> Just ready to get stolen. <laughs> and there comes Ziggy with his leather jacket. Um, we have, this is the start. So we're talking about season two, episode five, colon, undertow. <laughs> I don't know why I said colon. It's not the, the, it's not the word colon. It's, it's the, just, yeah, the, colon, uh, undertow. The colon. <laughs> The punctuation. Um, what happens here? We start, well, we, the... the the details start to get back together in the previous episode, and Freeman rejoins them. Hey, they back. he comes to the offsite. Everyone's happy to see Freeman. I didn't know his nickname was Cool Lester Smooth. This is what Kima calls him as he walks through the door. Yeah, it's like it's perfect. It's brilliant. It's, like, it's so perfect. <laughs> Just sums him right up, doesn't it? Cool Lester Smooth. What a good moment. I, I, we've got to talk about this this moment though, where like he <laughs> strolls in. Looks at the board and he's like, oh, Frank Sabaka. <laughs> and they're all like, damn, he's good. <laughs> that got me so good. I loved it. Frank Sabaka? How fucking good is he? You know the man. Me and Buck Morner were fucking with this guy last week, working that case about those dead girls in the container. But yeah, they just know this is the guy. We need, we need this. The, the detail is, the detail is Freeman, basically. If Freeman's not a part of it, He's the backbone to any good detail. Yeah. Really. If you don't have a Lester Freeman, you may as well just go just, home. Just wrap it up. Yeah, in the previous episode, they'd been scuppered. Freeman and Bunk had been scuppered by Horseface's steadfastness. Yeah. Um, so they decide to serve a grand jury, or grand jury them. I don't know what the correct term is. Grand jury summons, is it? Grand, they, yeah. The grand jury summons. I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> <laughs> someone tell us. Someone tell us how the law works in America. That music means you're in producer Tom's elevator, stopping at the fact floor. So I thought I'd step in here just to tell you about what a grand jury actually is. 
A grand jury is a legal body which has the power to conduct official proceedings to investigate possible criminal conduct. They decide whether criminal charges should be brought. A grand jury may subpoena evidence and may compel the sworn testimony of witnesses who appear before it. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution requires the use of grand juries by the federal legal system for all capital and infamous crimes. That's cases involving treason, certain felonies or gross moral turpitude, which is the worst kind of turpitude in my book. And um, we thought Horseface knew how to stand his ground, but Frank Sabotka oh. absolutely rips him and brand new asshole. He's a tour de force Brilliant. Here. I Brilliant. thought he was like... Frank Sabatka was the standout of this episode for me. Like uh, he doesn't re- he only kind of shows up in other people's plots, but when he does it's like he's like you finally see how he became union leader yeah. and like what a, uh, like he's he's scary and he's kind of right and yeah. he's like <laughs> kind of right. Yes. <laughs> he like he and he stands up to two police officers yeah. standing in front of him with a grand jury summons. Yeah. I mean, I would cave like a like a piece of jelly. Yes, sir. Please, sir. Where should I go? Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> grand jury for the Circuit Court of Baltimore City. You work the Atlantic Light, right? Everybody on that ship testifies. About what? About them girls in the can. The detective here thinks we know something about that mess. He thinks we'd leave them there on the dock in a box, dying there in the dark because. Because why, detective? What reason would we have to want girls to die like that? Why would any of us leave them in there if we knew anything about it? I got a wife and three sisters, and they got daughters. And I got too much respect for women not to be pissed off at what's in your heads right now. But of all the cans on the terminal, that's the one you lose in the stacks. We ain't no shit, goddammit! You want us to dance with a grand jury, we will! What do you say, Johnny? What do you say to any question? I take the Fifth Commandment. And if they offer you immunity to testify against your union brothers? I don't remember. Don't remember what? Nothing. What you're forgetting, detective, is that every IBS local on the East Coast has had its ass in front of a federal grand jury two or three times already. You want to throw your summonses? Throw them. You want to subpoena our records? Shit, you don't even need a subpoena no more. Our books have been open to the Justice Department for eight years. We're here through Bobby Kennedy, Tricky Dick Nixon, Ronnie the Union Buster Reagan, and half a dozen other sons of bitches. We'll be here through your weak bullshit, no problem. Powerhouse. He always was a powerhouse. And that scene, um, that scene was really intense. This is Jeffrey Pratt Gordon, who played Johnny 50. Because it was such a powerful scene, I wanted to counteract the power of Chris by being just pretty much still and silent. Not just because I didn't have dialogue, but I was standing behind him the way it was blocked. I'm sitting behind him. And so like I had his back. Um, But at the same time, it was a fucked up situation. And for me, it was just to counteract or counterbalance his, his intensity with, sort of not a lot of movement and, and silence in that. Um, and then when he invites me to stand up and I go over to, to, to meet Bunk, um, I stuck my hand out and he didn't, he just looked at my hand, which was great because that, I wasn't supposed to, you know, nobody told me to shake his hand. I just stuck it out because that's what you do. You shake somebody's hand when you meet him. And he just looked at me and I, and I love that he just shot me a look and that gave me a moment to be like, ooh, fuck, this is for real. Like I'm in some serious shit. Um, 
but I was remorseful about those girls in the can. And so when we were doing that scene, I was full of remorse inside. Um, I hope it translated. Um, and then, you know, after a few takes, you know, where I say I, I take the fifth commandment, that's, that's me dumb. Right. And, um, Chris comes over to me in between takes and he goes, Hey, Jeff, um, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but you're saying fifth commandment. It's fifth amendment. And I said, Chris, it's in the dialogue. It's fifth commandment. That's the joke. He's like, Oh shit. Fuck. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But that, that scene's it's, it's a standout scene for Frank Sabotka and in this episode as well. Definitely. And it's like, it's interesting cause he's, He's taken the moral high ground and he's defensive and he says, I'm disgusted that you can even imply that I have anything to do with this thing. And like, he delivers that with such a believable straight face when he has everything to do with it. Well, I mean, we came off the back of the last episode where Frank Sabotka is, he's been sick, vomiting into the sink because he just, he's just realized the full extent of this, of the, of the women dying wasn't an accident. It was a proper full on murder and he's implicated in that. And this is how he's chosen to approach it it's and it's probably a good tactic yeah, I yeah. Think, like play defensive because it's, i mean he it's not his fault ish no accessory <laughs> yeah accessory uh. don't know i laugh into that um <laughs> yeah just see you get really dark sometimes I do, yeah. <laughs> uh let's talk about bd russell because we have i i do love her in the seat oh i love bd russell and she's got some good bits in this episode yes she's uh so this is where uh Bunk kind of turns to her. The, the grand jury summons don't amount to anything because yeah. they're all real badass. I love that line from the lawyer. He's like, I, could, I can just about convince one of them to tell me that where the water is or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like, very good. Um, but Bunk asks Speedy, sort of, you know, we're at a loose end now. Do you have any CIs we could turn to? She doesn't even know what a CI is, yeah. which is lo- a lovely little touch. Just shows how inexperienced she is. It's kind of, it's kind of sad. I felt bad for her in this moment, but then she, she takes that on board, and immediately she's like, right, I, she's like, that's this is why Beatty's such a good character yeah. because she doesn't really have, you know, she she's never had the drive, uh, to 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 become a. Right, de- de- detective or anything. Well, she she's, seemed kind of happy in her she, lot. She came lots. to it because it was more money for her. And she's yeah. a single mother and fair play. And she's obviously, in her side of the police force, it's actually quite a simple job. She can ro- ride around with the headphones and listen to music and like just have some banter with the guys on the on the docks. And she seemed content with that. Yeah. She was happy for that, for her lot. And, yeah. and so it's like this kind of thing just landed in her lap. But I like that she doesn't reject it. She embraces Absolutely. her shortcomings yeah. and then she goes out and uh, taps an old flame Maui I think is his yeah. name um, who we saw um, tripping Ziggy up in the in the, in office. the last episode in yeah. the office and uh, and she starts working him like a CEI and she does she does a really good job because actually that's a very uncomfortable and difficult thing yeah, to totally. do totally uh, especially as they were once entwined romantically <laughs> entwined <laughs> Brilliant. She's just really nice, isn't she? She's just like a very decent. Because when she's first in it, she's what she's like the port police, isn't she? And she just sort of like knocks around in a car patrolling. This is Jen and Hannah from the Standard Issue podcast. Didn't really. Yeah, basically, she didn't really do anything, and then obviously they find all the women in the um, in the in the can, and uh, and she's in like way over her pay grade. She didn't have a fucking clue what's going on um but she just like 
comes into her own and then obviously becomes like a crucial part of the team and she's really good and and just like a nice person and I think you quite often say she's basically like a lot of the women in the wire also I mean the whole point of the wire is that people are complicated and people are flawed and and they're all a product of of their environment and the and the stuff they have to deal with but a lot of the women in the wire are basically dicks as well She's not. She's one of. The, she's probably the most likable female character in the Wire. I think. Oh, she like but yeah. But well, I, you can tell that because they all really love her. Like every time she comes in a room, like Bunk loves her, like Lester loves her. They're all like, "Yay, great job!" So I think I think would, that would have been a really hard conversation to do, and definitely a world that she's not been used to, uh, kind of an angle she's not been used to going down. Um, but again, she just seems to take to like a duck to water. She's just a brilliant brilliant police really yeah she's she's good police in the making yeah. I love I love this like it's it's a BD origin story <laughs> it is this is this series it's <laughs> BD begins <laughs> I do like it though at the at the end of uh, at the end of BD hitting hitting Maui for information he finally kind of caves and he and he's like I'm not saying anything but maybe you should take a look at the computers <laughs> <laughs> well, I does it in a bit more roundabout way but yeah nudge nudge wink it's wink like, I love Wow, they go, see, we are at the docks. Yeah. <laughs> Proof. Um, but I like that, like, that never even occurred to, to her or Bunk to, to, like, look into their, their computer system. That kind of shows, it's a sign of the times from 2003. Yeah. That that never even occurred to anybody. That there's computers on, they could be, check. Yeah, yeah. They'd, they'd be tracking the whole thing by computers. It's like they had to be told by someone on the inside to even connect those dots, which is interesting. And I kind of wonder at this point what... Maui was thinking why he chose to give up that kind of information because surely he, he's potentially implicated in this as well. Uh, Is he though? I wonder, I wonder. He seems kind of like maybe he's a little detached from it. I'm not, I'm not so sure. But it seems to be mainly horse face yeah. is Sabatka's sort of go-to guy up in the control tower. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, he gave Ziggy some abuse for stealing the cameras so maybe he's a bit more forthright than the rest of the of the stevedores. That's true. They yeah, they do set that up. Yeah. So back to uh, McNulty and the hunt for Omar. So yeah. we have uh, so Bubbles turns up at the docks uh, looking for McNulty because he's finally got Omar's detail. It's a lovely little bit here. It opens on Bubbles um, tying a barbecue to a, to a, to a lamppost. Yeah, checking out. I think no, I think it's tied there already, but he's like checking it out. Oh, is that it? As if he's like going to be able to steal it. Yeah, <laughs> and you sell it for scrap. And I love his little sort of moment with Digsy here. <laughs> Digsy, unsung hero he of this series. I raised him on a radio. He's on his way in right now. Appreciate that, officer. Nice day. Summer silver for 50. Top of line right here. Um... And so Bubbles lets McNulty know that uh, he knows where Omar is. Here's how you can contact him. Basically, you know, as we said last episode, cut out, cut out the middleman. We finally got to McNulty meets Omar. Um, but I like this little moment with with Bubbles, where McNulty just offers him cab fare home, mm-hmm. and Bubbles kind of, you know, straightens his back and he's like, "No, that's not. It's not good enough. I'm not going to yeah, accept that." He knows his worth. He just had a shotgun pointed in his face. Yeah. By someone who has killed people so it's not you know him being dead is a complete possibility yeah and I think fair play to Bubbles you yeah. know, he's got a, uh, he's got a spine and he knows his value Andre is uh, 
like amazingly charismatic and like always a sharp dresser. And even as his character bubbles, he was still this amazingly charismatic, like kind of force of nature. This is our chat with Leo Fitzpatrick, who played Johnny Weeks. I must admit, I, I've never seen the show, but um, I know his, I don't know, I guess his character's lovable, but Andre is like really lovable. Like he's, he's amazing. Yes, you heard that right. Leo Fitzpatrick has not seen The Wire, so we had to ask why. It's not an ego thing. It's it's nothing like that. It's just um, I, I figured like I'll get mono at some point or like be bedridden with some terrible <laughs> disease, and I'll have to watch all this shit. Like I'm kind of saving it, you know. Like The Sopranos, Breaking Bad. There's a lot of shows I've never seen. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not like I'm the star of The Wire. There's a million characters. Uh, it's just I haven't gotten around to it. Um, but it's also kind of nice to to have it for the future, to one day be able to watch it, you know. But this leads us to bringing Omar to the court and in front of the lawyer. This is all about, they've been finding, they've been looking for Omar to nail Bird as a result of, well, for him killing Gant, uh, which happened towards the start of season one. And, uh, yeah, so we meet the uh, the prosecutor, Eileen Nathan, and she's sort of giving Omar his, his prep. Yeah. His prep on the witness stand. Uh, I kind of like the scene where he's... Uh, she, well, she describes him as a sociopath. She mm. says to McNulty, if I put this sociopath <laughs> up on the stand, you know, Morris Levy's going to chew him alive. Um, but she gives McNulty, what is it, $150, I think, yeah, hun- it, to buy some a voucher to get, yeah. yeah. Which, I don't know if that's a thing. That sounds, um, it sounds fair, actually, because some people, you will be judged on your appearance. And if you can't afford to represent yourself, then you are, uh, you'll be screwed. Yeah. If, if anybody has any familiarity with the legal system in America and can enlighten us on this, please drop us a line. Yeah. Um, and then we get the pretty woman shopping montage. <laughs> I can't have him on the stand looking like that. Here's a voucher for court clothes. The voucher says 150. Hey, look on the clearance rack. It's a look. No, it ain't. Pretty woman walking down the street. Pretty woman. Minolte's still on the hunt to try and find and identify the girl who he found floating, the dead girl who, who he found floating, the Jane Doe, number one. Um, he drives to New Jersey I think yeah, it was yeah with some with some help from FBI people yeah and, and uh, he he goes to um, he goes to a cell where a lot of the uh, illegal immigrant uh, vice suspects are being held mm. um, and asks ask them if they can help out and there's this it's, it's a real tragic moment where they they look up and basically ask you know does this mean we can stay and they, they realize that it doesn't do you think they knew something? They might have. Yeah. They might have. I think it's it's unclear. Yeah. Um, but I think what's what's clearer is that they're they're unwilling to help unless there's something in it in it for them, which which that's kind I of fair. Really understand. Yeah, they've yeah. come to America through horrible circumstances. Some have been deported and come back again um, because they need there's something wrong with the lives from whence they've come.
Hi guys, my Twitter is Sherry from West Virginia, and that's me. I just wanted to say you're doing a great job on uh, the Wire Strip podcast, and I'm really enjoying it. My favorite character in season two is Frank Sabatka. I grew up in coal country when jobs in the mines were disappearing, like on the docks. Frank was very real to me. The writing and acting were totally on point. Life changed overnight for these guys and the economic forces were just too powerful for unions to control and we saw that in Frank's story. Just like the docks, my home county gave up and we succumbed to the opioid epidemic and today McDowell County has the highest overdose rate in the country. Frank's a hero and a victim. P.S. Just like the docks, no politician can bring coal back. Thank you very much for leaving that burning message. They'll be entered into the prize draw to win the signed all the Pieces Matter book signed by Clark Peters. Dave, how can I get in contact with us via the burner? Well, Kobe, I'm glad you asked. All you got to do is WhatsApp voice memos at the number plus four four seven five three four eight three one six five eight. If you don't know how to leave a WhatsApp voice memo, you just go into WhatsApp. You you go that go to that number, do the thing, and then you press the buttons, and it's that easy. Or if you prefer, you can use your favourite voice memo app on your phone and send us the file via email to burner at thewirestripped.com. This week, we still want to know who was your favourite character in season two and why. And keep it short and sweet. And also, give us your Twitter account so we can link to you later on. So, as part of the band getting back together, we've seen Freeman at the top of the episode carve us back in the fold after being chewed out by Daniels. Um. <laughs> this didn't this didn't really ring true for me I'll be honest Why is that? Uh, Daniel's offering Carver this position I talked about last episode about um, this series having a few moments that felt a bit uh, forced that they didn't really serve the narrative this to me felt like um, and I don't know the background of this but I f- it felt like um, they want they had an idea that they, they needed the season the first season back together again. Right. They need the crew back together again because that's what people liked. This almost feels like studio um, interference, although it, it it may not be, and I don't think HBO really run things like that. But it felt like this didn't feel like a natural flow for Daniels' character to bring Carver in because he's the only one he can trust because he's already betrayed him once. That doesn't feel organic to me. I think it's been. I think it's been reverse engineered by the writers in that we need everyone back together. How could we get everyone back together? Okay. And then it's like, oh, well, maybe he could forgive him because it's like, I don't believe that Daniels as a character would have reached out to Carver. I believe that the writers wanted Carver there and then wrote that in. Well, I'm, I'm nowhere, well, Herc said, you know what, we can get Carver back because he's in the Southwestern uh, district. So I think, you know, I, Daniels knows how the detail works and he knew that when he when he had it running it was it was like a purring engine but I, I kind of this this scene I can see a bit being a bit jarring but I'm you know I'm glad to have Carver back in the fold with everyone else yeah don't get, don't get me wrong I yeah, like yeah. Carver and I like seeing everyone back together but it just felt a little a little inorganic so then we, this leads to obviously Carver's back in the fold and I like the way Daniels lets him back in but it says you know Kima's Kima's your point for this Kim is in charge of you guys I do like that they wrote that in it was yeah. like right you, you, you're, you can come in but you're being demoted yeah exactly um, he seems totally happy about that I think, I think like, well I guess he was writing parking tickets for Valchek <laughs> down at the docks before that 
um, Q doing some more undercover work, uh, hand-to-hand stuff. With <laughs> There's some great stuff here. I love all this. This is a really funny episode. It is. There's a lot of really like touch in this. Oh, Herc, Herc points out, hey, we're looking at white guy drug dealers. I'm a white guy here, so I need to be the one doing hand-to-hands. <laughs> and, <laughs> the props. And Q, Q, uh, Keeman, Carver waiting for ages for Herc to turn up and he rocks up in this like John Motson type fur-lined cagoule jacket thing with a, with a toothpick. Producer Tom here just thought I'd step in to explain to anyone who isn't British who John Motson is. Uh, John Motson is a football, that's soccer, commentator. Quite an iconic commentator at that. Famous for wearing a sheepskin jacket and standing in the snow at the side of a football pitch. Is this what... Is this what people look like in yeah, 2003 exactly. I don't remember <laughs> uh, it's something else but yeah it's all about the toothpick it's brilliant all about the prop <laughs> but like I mean top marks um, because this, this scene is played for comedy and I think they kind of nail it it's like just perfectly done yeah yo dickhead where you been at when you work in deep cover cop you gotta get into the park alright let's check in with Ziggy and the dogs <laughs> so you know at the very start of this episode we open on a uh, a little drug deal going down on yeah. the east side. Uh, white drug dealer again. Frog. And, uh, Frog is his name, yeah. Yeah. Ziggy comes up uh, and asks for his money, but he's short. Uh, Frog basically says they got they got the stash got robbed or whatever. Ziggy does the most pathetic attempt at sort of intimidating <laughs> him, uh, which doesn't work. And then Ziggy sees what real intimidation looks like when the guy he bought the drugs from cheese. Yeah. Shows up with his crew and beat him up. Well, the first of all, the guy that they hands me the money was actually my rap partner. This is rapper D. Rain, who played Frog in The Wire. That's the guy that I came into. Um, I was in a, a rap group at that time. Um, so for just that exchange right there, you know, it took a lot of hard work for us to get to that point. So that's the you know one of the only times. That you see me and actually his character had did have a name. I, I I don't think it's really out there like that, but his name was Dirt, and um, he only had one little short line, and you really didn't hear it um, because it was you know talked over or whatever. So um, that moment right there, that it meant a lot. You know, the first time that you see us together, the first time that you see me, that meant a lot to me. You know what I mean? Um, just from a you know a, a success standpoint. Um, so, um, when I, as far as the character is concerned, I think that Frog, I think that Frog was just an asshole. You know, he, um, he had a sense of entitlement. Um, he, um, he was really naive, you know, and he lived his entire life within a four block radius. Um, I can say that because I, that was me, you know what I mean? And there's so many of us, you know, that, um, that live in, in such a confined world that, um, the things that happen in this small little area are reality to us, but they're not, you know? So for him, you know, he knew that he was, that he had protection. Um, if, you know, something went down, so um, I'm sure that he felt that he could, you know, he could get away with pretty much anything. Another funny thing that happened was um, 
when Method Man punched uh, Ziggy in the face on the, the hood of the car and said not even a black man can style this shit. He really hit him in the mouth probably like three or four times. They kept doing that scene over and over. And uh, I remember the actor, I forget his name, but he said, damn, you got a hard punch. And because uh, I'm standing right there, you know, the whole time while they're doing that. There was parts of that that got clicked got cut out but originally there was an interaction between me and um between me and cheese that never made it and it's just me basically laughing my head off um while he's punching him and he's like you know cheese is like you think that shit's funny i said hell yeah this scene is like again we mentioned how there's a lot of laughs in this episode and i feel like this is large kind of played for laughs yeah it seems almost it seems very slapsticky yeah, it does, mm. and he's like, but it's 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 not. It's very it's very it's a very serious situation. Oh yeah, but I think just the, the it's the ridiculousness of Ziggy, and he just looks so out of place. He looks so tiny and small compared to is. I think there's maybe six guys from Cheese Cheese's crew. He comes out with the with the baseball bat. He's probably some of the guys have got guns on them. Yeah, and. There's no way Ziggy's going to go anywhere. They don't need to rough him up in the way they do. Um, but he's... I mean, one thing you didn't say is, at the, at the start of the episode, Frog gets a load of money from one runner, Hopper, puts it in one side of his jacket. Yeah. He sees Ziggy come along and gives Ziggy like the, the reduced amount of cash. So he's got all the cash on him. Yeah. But So Ziggy's just not respected from by anyone, it seems. And why would he be? He's driving around in this flash red Camaro and he's yeah. got an Italian stupid leather jacket. <laughs> like, he's not right for that world. Mm. If anything, I was thinking, Ziggy's kind of the D'Angelo of season two. Kind of, yeah. In a way, you know, he's, so, he's the square peg in a round hole. He's not, he doesn't fit in here. He shouldn't be here. And more and more, we keep seeing with Ziggy, he's... Uh, he's very intelligent. Yeah, like yeah. He's he's just not smart. I think that's the difference. Yeah, he's putting his intelligence, he's putting his energies in the wrong places. Exactly. Where he could he could, you know, you get you get the kind of feeling that if he, when he was at high school, he probably didn't try that hard. He was the class clown, and kind of dropped out because he couldn't be bothered. Uh, whereas. I guess at the parent teacher association, the PTA meetings. Um, all the teachers would have been saying to Frank and Mrs. Sabotka that, you know, Ziggy's a good guy. He could go places if he wanted to try, but he just wasn't. And and he clearly has some sort of technical know-how, like he's good with computers. Yeah. He knows how to work the six megapixel cameras. <laughs> like, you just feel like if he was born in a, sort of into a middle-class environment, mm. maybe, and went to university, he'd probably be in Silicon Valley or yeah. something. Yeah, totally. So it's a real sort of... It's he's exactly like D'Angelo. He's just not likable like D'Angelo. True. He's just very, very unlikable, uh, deliberately so. Um, so yeah, we meet Cheese for the first time, and they steal they steal Ziggy's car, Princess. <laughs> Princess. I mean, <laughs> do, do, do you name your cars? Um, no, but my wife calls every single car she's owned Bob. <laughs> That's a great name for a car. <laughs> um, I've named. What do I name? My bikes, they, they, yeah, they have Yeah, what's names. your bike called? My current bike is called Belinda. 
Nice. <laughs> <laughs> after uh, my dad wrote a porno. Yeah, after, uh, yeah it is yeah, actually yeah, yeah. directly, <laughs> directly from Belinda Blinked. Nice. I get public transport, so I, I just feel weird naming my train. You'd have to come up with a new one every single day. <laughs> exactly. Unless you know, unless you recognise the number. <laughs> oh, 26G. Yeah. How you been? AKA Giselle. <laughs> um. So Ziggy tells Nick about his problems, uh, and Nick heads down to the to the corner of the east side and tries to reason with uh, with Cheese. Cheese says, you know, he'll give him one more week, but he's not giving the car back. Mm. Cue reveal. Princess has been destroyed. <laughs> Poor princess. Method is very, very dear to me. He also has a, a wonderful part on the deuce. This is Alexa Fogel. She was the casting director for The Wire. He auditioned for The Wire for that part a couple times and he's always prepared he's always on time he takes it really seriously and the thing is if you've re- if you've reached the top of your game in one form of performing there is always a possibility that you're good at another kind of performing if you set your mind to it it doesn't always work out but I'm open to that. The great thing about method auditioning is that as soon as he got on the show, every rapper's rep was calling me saying they wanted to be on The Wire. And my response could always be, well, when I have the right thing, they're welcome to audition. And nobody wanted to audition. So method did me that favor. Um, But I think that's another great example of the thing that's unique about blown, the blown, blown deadline folks is that you know he's beloved and he's now really really gotten to be such a good actor and he's got this wonderful part on the deuce and that's about evolving that was a dream come true being able to be in anything with method man was definitely a dream come true when i saw that method man was on the um the uh, in the script that's how i found out um that he was going to be on the show um i was ecstatic and uh and you know i i got the rap with him that day um we had a cypher uh, we actually had a battle that was videotaped um that i've never released but um i actually think that i won but i guess every rapper kind of always thinks that they you know they always come out on top but method man is an absolute legend and he's a he's a great guy um he gave me a ton of advice and uh and he's he's just amazing he um there's not enough kind words that i can string together to uh to talk about meth he's just he's just an amazing dude again nick just trying to step in for i mean this it's admirable isn't it He's stepping in for Ziggy. Everyone, everyone else hates him apart from his his dad and Nick. It seems. Well, it's fa- like Nick respects family. Yeah. Um, and he looks out for his for his cousin, which is very frustrating. It's frustrating to watch Ziggy's shenanigans. It must be even more frustrating to have to actually fix his problems. <laughs> and we also get um, down in the docks. Uh, Nick meets Spiros off the back of the grand jury summons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's there on behalf of Frank and he tells him that they, they want to put a stall on things just while all the police heat is on them. Which is fair enough. Yeah, that's what I would do. <laughs> but Spiros is like, no, don't worry about it. It's all going to be cool. Double the price. Yeah. Uh, Frank 
meets Spiros, uh, but is very angry because the Greek refuses to show. And yeah. we get another Frank chewing him out performance. Brilliant. Frank's just so good in this episode. Um, and, um, and he says no. Um, and then you get this lovely little subtle, subtle line from Spiros about there. They used to make steel over there. No, it's like this such a, uh, idle threat. That your industry's dying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a subtle reminder to Frank. I do love Spiros. I think he's a fantastic character. He's excellent. And I love, I love his flat cap. <laughs> yeah, he's stylish. <laughs> We're back to style. We're back to style. Uh, he's got loads of style. Ziggy hasn't. Ziggy could learn a lot from him. I think he could do. I don't think Ziggy could pull off a flat cap though. He'd probably get a $20,000 one <laughs> made in uh, Tuscany. <laughs> we, um, I guess we go back to the pits. We see Poots uh, for the first time in this episode. Yeah. The, pits, the pits are in disarray. Um, they're beating up people because they're, well, truthfully saying that the, the product is crap and they're, and, the, and they're beating up everyone. Well, all the young hoppers around, they're just beating the fiends up, um, which can't help business. That's not how you do business. No. And I like the, uh, the interesting difference between Poot and Bodhi here about how they dealt with the problem. Poot's very much uh, laid back. He kind of goes to intervene and he's like, nah, okay. And then he sits back and goes like, yeah, it's going to happen, uh, whatever. Probably rings up one of his two phones to talk to one of his, one of his hussies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to continue to say hussies. I like it. Um, but Bodhi steps in and he's like, no, nah, this ain't right. Mm. Uh, and he's... He realizes that, like you said, it's not how you do business, and he lets Stringer know immediately. Um, and we go back to Stringer in economics, learning about how to how to manage your product if it's weak or if it's uh, if it's substandard against a competitor. I love this. It's so good. I love that Stringer Bell is applying like real life drug problems to his <laughs> economics professor and his economics professor is helping. I love, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just like, uh, sir, I've just got a question for you. I've got these bad drugs. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to keep on selling them so people don't get pissed off. Well, what you can do with your drugs is just uh, call them a different name. Excellent. Thank you, sir. <laughs> do you want a cut of it? No. Turn to page 326. Yeah. <laughs> uh, titled The Drug Problem. Stringer Bell at CCBC. This is Andrew Johnston, podcaster, academic, and native of Maryland. The Community College of Baltimore County is when he asks his professor what to do about his damaged product, its reputation, and the guy alludes to this, this case where... Uh, where uh, all, all, Tylenol was like... Someone was putting poison inside of Tylenol pill uh, bottles, basically, and so uh, you know that's why we have like childproof caps and cotton balls and all these things in in our medicine. Uh, when that happened, they had to like totally rebrand because everyone's like, "I'm not taking that; it's poison," you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So this stupid community college professor at a school that I have taught classes. This season, by the way, this season, it's all, this is my life in Baltimore. Is, everything is in this season. I've taught at community college before. He is helping a criminal conspiracy out. And Stringer's just like, Man, that's a good idea. <laughs> like, what? Of course, of course, because drugs are just a business. Um, but a lot of this is actually... Um I mean, Stringer Bell is loosely, Stringer and Avon are, are sort of loosely based on real life 
drug dealers that um, David Simon and Ed Burns uh, actually worked on a wiretap case. And that's yep. largely what season one is based around. Mm-hmm. And the real-life version of Stringer Bell also attended a, a macroeconomics. Is that right? Course. So that's, that detail okay. is pulled out of real life. That's great to know. And then we get... Uh, I, I love you sort of see the follow-through in this episode. So we see uh, uh, String getting the solution to the problem of what to do with an inferior product in an aggressive marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then he, <laughs> he sort of... Then he becomes the professor yeah. later on in the funeral home when he's got, a, he's got his team around. And, and he's, I love this. He does, the, he does this sort of a teacher thing. He does he? do, yeah. He leads them to it. So Berta comes up with a, with a point, I guess. Follow-through <laughs> yeah. to show you working. <laughs> <laughs> And then he's like, does this proud sort of teacher thing with Bodhi, like, yes, smart boy. Yes, I'll give you a gold star. <laughs> yeah, they're in the parlor, and he's saying, and he's trying to get these dumb street corner hoodlums to come up with how do we rebrand it. And then Bodhi's like, we can move some product over there and call it this thing. And then when people realize it's bad, we give it a different name over here, and then they come over, and you're like, that is. That's like insider trading. That's they've just committed a white collar. Like Bodie is ready for white collar crime. <laughs> well, you know, on top of the murder that he committed in season one, that was really unfortunate. One detail I like to point out is is going back to McNulty on the boats. We've he's seen a few times. He has no he has no intent. He doesn't care that he's there. He's no intent about learning the ropes. Literally, he doesn't know how to tie any knots. Bubbles meets him at the in the start of this episode, and and he says to him, "What's that? What's that knot? Oh, it's the Baltimore knot. I, I, I can't. I'm 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 telling it poorly. Um, but Bubbles, yeah, Bubbles knows more about how to tie a knot in the nautical world. <laughs> yeah, than, than even McNulty. Than McNulty he's working does. on the marine. Unit. He's working on the marine unit, and he doesn't care. He just doesn't care in any way, shape, or form that he's in this place. It's never the same knot twice. That's yeah. What he says. Can we talk a little bit about the scene with Nick and Ziggy in the public library using the internet? <laughs> <laughs> so this was 2003. Yeah, I guess a lot of people would have been on the internet either via their school or university or, or a public library. Yeah, I mean, I remember. That's you know, that's how we used to get on the internet, right? Uh, yeah, you totally. go down, you got to you log in in the public library. You usually had an hour. <laughs> you had to be out after no more, an hour. no less. Yeah, <laughs> you could uh, scroll Wikipedia all you liked for one hour because <laughs> that's pretty much all there was to do. Um, and you you know you check Alta Vista or uh, Ask, Jeeves. Ask Jeeves, yeah, but probably not MSN Search like Ziggy uses. Well, yeah, it must have been a product placement. <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> probably Microsoft would have been dominating back then. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And definitely. I really like that... Uh, I loved Nick's sort of confusion here when he's like to Ziggy. So, so you just... What does he say? You just type that shit in there and ask it for an answer. <laughs> it's like, I wish... I, like, I wish Google would like have picked up that scene and like run it as an ad at the yeah, early they, days. They totally should they, shouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. This is how you Google. Um... But again, this is this is Ziggy being a smart guy, just in the wrong side of the tracks, I guess. Yeah, and he knows these chemicals. He knows how to spell them. Like yeah. he's 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 intelligent. Yeah, he knows how to use a public library computer, Kobe. <laughs> this guy, this kid, could have gone far. We we talked a bit about Nick and him having smarter plans for spending his money, uh, misguided probably. And we see him and uh, Amy go to do. 
go to an open house to check out the house, which used to belong to his auntie. Um, and I guess it's kind of fair enough. It's like, my auntie used to have this house, which means I could probably afford it. And you just walk in there, you see straight away they, they can't afford that house. No, it's really nice. Yeah. I, <laughs> I had sort of house, house I envy. Um, yeah. Yeah. After Nikki successfully moves the cameras, he's got a little, he's finally set about his dreams, right? Got a little scratch. He and the lady, they can buy a small place in Locust Point. And then they go house shopping. And it's McNulty's wife is the realtor. And they're like, oh, Fed Hill. And he's like, Fed Hill? This ain't Fed Hill. This is Locust Point. And she's like, well, for, you know, realty purposes, this is Fed Hill. And I love that moment because it's a thing that happens everywhere. But as was in the 2000s, it was a real problem in Maryland where we were just sort of like, so the difference between Fed Hill and Locust Point, Fed Hill is, Federal Hill, I keep saying Fed Hill, Federal Hill is a neighborhood in Baltimore on a hill, surprise, there's a hill, it's called Federal Hill, and it's a very historic neighborhood. Like if you go there today, it's almost all 18th century construction or end of the 19th century row houses. It's all very middle class, tons of bars, restaurants, events, you know, like the Baltimore Marathon goes through Fed Hill. And then like five feet away is Locust Point, which is the docks and all these 20th century mostly construction of just like the, like when you see Nikki's house, like when he, when Ziggy's unconscious on the couch and then Nikki walks out and it's just these run down aluminum siding, like all the interiors are wood paneling because I don't know why, but we had an obsession after World War II with wood paneling. The house I grew up with had wood paneling in the, on the whole uh, ground floor for some reason, uh, absolutely out of control. It's just this, it, it's a tale of two cities wrapped up in these neighborhoods. Like Locust Point is historic, but it was completely destroyed. All of the history of it was really wiped out to build the docks up when the docks became what they were, this outer harbor region. So um, he reacts to that, oh, this is Federal Hill, as this, like, he's grown up at the bottom of the hill at Locust Point and has looked up towards Fed Hill as almost this, like, that's where the, you know, not necessarily the richy riches, but the richer people are up there, and that's the aspiration. And uh, there's no way I could jump from point from where I am to up there. And he's so angry that they're calling this house Federal Hill. And it used to be his aunt's house. And he's like, nah, this was my aunt's house. This is, this is what I should, this is, that's why he goes for that house. This is what I should buy. This is that dream that I'm supposed to have, is this. And they've gentrified it. They've stolen it from me. And these wealthy people, who are the real enemies, in seasons two and three. It's sad, isn't it? I mean, it's like, but it's, it's so well written that, that the fact that it's his aunt's house, because mm. um, it, it's again, it's the, it's the past 
like uh, throwing, casting a very big shadow mm. over over the present. You've got Frank and the Union, and the, uh, everyone in Dolores's bar talks about the glory days, yeah. about how things used to be. They all have stories about the the good old days when there was loads of work and all the ships were coming in, and that's all that Nick and Ziggy hear all the time, and they're, that, that they kind of grew up in in that, and now they're forced to live uh, to live in the shadows of of that past where there is no work. The same, like his his the house that was in his family is mm-hmm. now like out of his price range. Yeah. Their their future is disappearing in front of them. It's tragic. And did you notice that was McNulty's ex-wife, who's the realtor? No, I didn't notice this until three episodes later <laughs> when she showed up in her realtor outfit, <laughs> and I connected the dots. So, well done, you. Yeah. One little thing I noticed about um, this the scene and the pit. There's. If you, I, re- I recommend that everybody go go back and watch this right. because watch closely how Bodhi runs. How does he run? Uh, he kind of has his hands; they're either in his pockets or they're like pressed against his legs, and then he runs like with his arms to the, to the side without well, moving them, like it's, a penguin. <laughs> yes, very like a penguin. <laughs> All right, do you know what I do? We're gonna we're gonna record it, uh, and I'm gonna post it on our on our Twitter yeah. at the Wire Strip. Bodhi's run. Have a look at Bodhi's run. It's something else. <laughs> Another great little moment thing I noticed uh, while Omar is getting his um, his uh, pre-trial grilling. Yeah. Did you notice the magazine that McNulty's reading? Mm, no. What, what was it? It's Boating World. <laughs> it's just from a guy who does not give one shit about boating. <laughs> Such a nice. Maybe touch. maybe he's looking at Baltimore knots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> That's it from us this week. The next episode we're going to be watching is called All Prologue. And for anyone who hasn't seen The Wire yet, you're going to really enjoy this. This is a really good episode. And I this cannot is, wait to watch it again. This is a club banger of an episode. We need to thank, before next episode, all of our contributors, all the voices you hear on our show, because they make this podcast so, so special. And we love all of you. It's good. We really love so, you all. It's getting very emotional. And one tool we use to transcribe all the interviews with all those people we talk to is Sonics. That's S-O-N-I-X. It's a really great tool. And you can get 100 free minutes if you go to sonics.ai forward slash invite forward slash stripped. Yeah, thank you very much to our graphic artist, Chris Utera and Izzy Lawrence, because you guys make what we do visually amazing. And the music that you hear, the cover of Way Down in the Hole by Tom Waits, is by Martin and Sam from the Song by Song podcast. Cheers to Tom Wally, producer Tom, T-Bone, as a lot of you might know him, um, for being our ace producer and the third wheel to our tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the good ship tricycle. Um, you can you can contact us on social at uh, Podcast Tricycle on Facebook, Instagram. No, it's not. It's at The Wire Stripped on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do remember to subscribe to us, review, and tell all your friends because there's lots of people who still don't know that our show exists and we'd love you to tell all your friends about us. Make sure that everyone knows that the show exists. I yeah, think that sure. should be all of our goals collectively. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone on the planet needs to listen to the show. I think that's a reasonable target. I think that's fine. You're seven point X billion. That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That's your task this week. Leave us a burner message and also get seven billion people listening to the show. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>